Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you've found the internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. Today you're going to hear round one from a show recorded July 16th, 2013 at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles, featuring Joe Starr, Andy Haynes, Barbara Gray, Sean Patton, and David Huntsberger, reading pieces they wrote in advance based upon topics of their own choosing. Here we go. Enjoy. And now let's welcome your first competitor in round one who's come with a prepared piece. Let's go with Mr. Joe Starr. Joe Starr, ladies and gentlemen. Keep it going. No worries, sir. Good, good. Excellent. Hi, everybody. Regulators. We regulate any stealing of this property, and we're damn good, too. But you can't be any geek off the street. Gotta be handy with the steel, if you know what I mean. Earn your keep. Regulators, mount up. (laughs) It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Warren G. was in the sheets, trying to consume a a lukewarm Colt 45, unable to take his eyes off of his lover, Nate Dog, lying naked beside him. The air was thick with the musk of weed and cum. (laughs) Warren brushed aside the pack of open razors they had used to shave each other's genitals in the shower and rolled over to him. Well, I knew you had the the freaks, Nate, but now it's officially a known fact that you, sir, are freaky. He reached over and playfully tweaked his lover's nipples. (laughs) Nate, however, brushed him off. I knew you'd get like this. He sighed and sat up, fidgeting with the empty bottle of lube on the nightstand that just a half hour before had been emptied into his ass like shaking up 40 on a hose face in a Dr. Dre video. <laughs> this wasn't shit, Warren. You know that. The words hit Warren like an ice cube diss track. <laughs> this wasn't shit? Fuck you, Nate. Bitches ain't shit. Hoes and tricks ain't shit. This means something, Nate. <laughs> The way you look at me when we're together and you're going to tell me that it ain't shit? (laughs) Nate spun around best as he could, wincing from the pain of having been roughly spit-roasted by Warren's thick cock (laughs) and the suction cup dildo attached to the wall, still jiggling up and down at him accusingly. (laughs) Shut the fuck up, Warren. Just shut up. What did you think this was? Us tweaking into a whole new era? Fuck that. It's just you and me at the Eastside Motel and that's all it is. That's all it can be. Warren stood up on the bed, his cock swinging back and forth like a hype man's microphone at an NWA show. (laughs) This is all it can be? This? Why even save me from those die-shooting brothers tonight? They took my rings, Nate. They took my Rolex. (laughs) But now I'm looking at you, and I really know what it feels like to lose Warren's wealth. (laughs) He began wiping the excess whipped cream from his chest, fighting back tears. Damn, Nate. What's next? What was I supposed to do, Nate spat back. They had my homie hemmed up and they was all around. I was just supposed to let you die, see if they were going to go straight pound for pound? Warren smiled despite his anger, remembering the moment that he knew he was completely safe. I couldn't believe it was happening in my hometown, he said. And then I glanced in the cut and I saw you. And I still see you. (laughs) Nate took a step back, shaking his head and stumbling over the box their sex swing had been purchased in. (laughs) Oh, you see me, huh? 
you get to decorate my face like a toaster strudel a few times and that means you see me? You don't see shit, Warren. You don't see what I see, Warren G. countered, snapping the latex gloves off of his hands and flinging them against the wall where they stuck against a motel room painting of two cowboys watching a sunset. You don't see what I see every day is Warren G. And I see you. You, Nate Dog, tender, beautiful. We're supposed to regulate any stealing of this property, but did you have any idea that you stole my... Don't even fucking finish that sentence. <laughs> Nate Dog warned, jabbing a finger in the air at him, shaking. Don't you dare. Warren stepped off the bed towards the man who just earlier had eaten a fruit tart off of his ass. <laughs> Please, Nate, let's make this year different. Don't make me wait until August. Nate shrugged. I won't be here in August. I took a job in Long Beach. <laughs> Warren felt like he had been shot. Well, you know what, homeboy? That is a goddamn bitch of an unsatisfactory situation. You know, you used to come down here so easy. Now it's like trying to see Suge Knight. <laughs> Nate grabbed his arms, those toned, beautiful arms. He was shaking as he spoke. Warren, I gotta work. I mean, back in the day, I just quit jobs for you. You're from the Dre dynasty. You forget what it's like being a broke backup singer all the time. You ever hear of child support? Hell, it was hard enough getting this trip, and it was almost ruined by your little escapade at that dice game. The trade-off for this trip was August, or do you have a better idea? Warren broke away from his hold, tears streaming down his face. There was a squeak as he stepped on the lube-covered rubber duck that earlier they had corkscrewed into each other's assholes to supplement their hardcore gangster blowjobs. <laughs> a better idea? I did. Once. Nate couldn't help but roll his eyes. You know what? I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this one time, Warren fucking G, and I ain't bullshitting you. All this unspoken shit could get you killed if I hear it, and I'm not fucking around. Yeah, Warren couldn't control it anymore. It was flowing out of him like dope rhyme schemes over a fresh beat. <laughs> well, try this one, Nate, and I'll only say it once. Warren was pacing now, naked and crying for the whole world to see. His whole world, Nate Dog, but Nate refused to see him. Tell you what, Nate, we could have had a good life together. A fucking real good life. Had a tight crib of our own in the hood. But you didn't want it, Nate. You didn't want funk on a whole new level. You wouldn't let the rhythm be the bass or the bass be the treble. So now, all we've got now is East Side Motel. Everything is built on that. You count the damn few times we've been together in nearly 10 years and you measure the short fucking leash you keep me on and then you tell me you'll jack me for needing something I hardly ever get. Fuck you, Nate. Nate just stood there listening in quiet shock. Warren continued, You have no idea how bad it gets. I'm not you. I'm not N-A-T-E. I'm me. The Warren to the G. I can't make it on a couple of fucks fucked out on a gangsta twist once or twice a year. You are too much for me, me Nate Dog. you son of a bitch. I wish I knew how to quit you. <laughs> a long silence hung in the air like the calm before a drive-by. And in Warren's shock, Nate was crying, trembling. And then Warren's arms were wrapped around him, holding him, consoling him, loving him. That night, the star-crossed lovers went their separate ways. Both had trouble maintaining relationships. They'd experienced something so deep, so precious, that both men wanted to think of better things than some horny tricks. Seventeen years had passed when Warren G. heard the news. He knocked on the door of the doghouse, unsure of what to expect, no clue what to say, and found himself at a kitchen table with Nate's parents. Nate's father, John Dog, <laughs> regarded him with a mix of pity and contempt. Nate used to say, that Warren G., I'm going to bring him up here, and one of these days we're going to lick this damn hood into shape. 
Then this spring, he had another fella come up around here with him, build a place, run the game, you know, some rapper he was collaborating with. But before John Doc could get rolling, Nate's mother returned to the kitchen for a pack with a package for Warren. She smiled sadly. He always said he wanted his ashes scattered at the East Side Motel. But I wasn't sure where that was. Knowing Nate, it was probably some pretend place where you could rock it till the wheels come off and where suckers who were getting too bold could take a seat to get ready for the next episode. <laughs> Warren just smiled, accepting the package. He couldn't find the words. Thank you, Mrs. Dog, he whispered. <laughs> and with a nod to Mr. Dog, walked out to the house to his 6'4 that he was rolling in. He paused as he unlocked the door, spotting a group of thugs shooting dice in a nearby alley. He imagined Nate Dog at that moment, beautiful and naked, cock erect as an ebony broadsword, pointed, a, pointed in warning at its enemies. Sixteen in the clip and one in the hole, the melodic black angel gunned the thugs down and then took Warren into his arms, easing himself into the wrapper, eyes locked on each other, bodies sweating and trembling. Warren thought about Nate, his hero, his lover, and then he jizzed in his underpants. Joe Stark! competitor, Mr. Andy Haynes, ladies and gentlemen, Andy Haynes. There he is. Hi, buddy. Uh, hi. Hi, everybody. How are you? I, I messed up. I, um, I read the email wrong, and I thought it said exotic fan fiction. That's weird. This is the third time you've done this show. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel really dumb. Do you mind if I still read it? I mean, it's, it's what he's got. I guess Sorry. we might as well hear it, right, guys? Yeah. I feel so stupid, but... I'm sorry. Well, uh, that smattering of applause is any indication. Yeah. <laughs> They're still on board. People must be excited. Uh, so, sorry, I thought it said exotic fan fiction. Um, welcome to Maui, the second largest <laughs> and arguably most beautiful of the Hawaiian Islands. You've arrived here after a long and stressful month spent negotiating your, the sale of your script, and after agents and managers have been paid, you're ready to take your money and see what this exotic tropical island has to offer. You disembark the plane and feel the warm but not humid breeze just as the sun is setting behind the luscious West Maui Mountains. You hear the waves crash. The saltwater mist gently kisses your skin. Adventures await. The exotic kind. You could stay at the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua and drink a Mai Tai while the Pacific sneaks between your toes on Hanakua Bay. But you prefer something off the grid for a more authentic adventure. You book your room at the Maui Hilton, drop your bags off in your room, and head down to the pool to watch a fire dance. Boy, is this exotic, you think. But then a tall Polynesian brings you a drink with pineapple and tamar juice, and your mind is blown. <laughs> The fire dancers are very exotic and buff. Do they get that buff from just fire dancing or do they train as well, you think to yourself? If it's just the fire dancing, someone should capitalize it on it. I mean, considering how successful Zumba and other exotic workouts have been, someone could make millions and someone could be you. Stop, you say to yourself. You came on this exotic trip to celebrate your recent sale of your script and you need to unwind and see what this island has to offer. Especially when it comes to exoticism. <laughs> Your focus comes back to the fire dancers. Wow, they're buff and exotic. <laughs> they exit the sandy area serving as the stage and a line of hula dance 
dancers enter, all basically smoking hot and, yes, exotic. (laughs) They shake their bountiful hips and bosoms from left to right, their molasses skin taut and healthy from years of sun and salt water. You look at the skin in their armpits and think to yourself that it looks like vagina skin and realize (laughs) armpits are basically arm crotches without the good stuff. You set your exotic drink down on the table to see better. It's served in a traditional tribal mask. But then you realize you don't have a table to set a drink on, and you just set your drink on your very erect penis. <laughs> just then you receive a text from your wife that says she thinks you should be able to have sex with other women because it increases her attraction to you. What a day, you exclaim, drawing looks from other guests watching the fire dancers. Some of the, giant, some of the hula dancers notice your giant boner, and since Hawaiian is, is an island of free of disease, you make love to all of them in a number of positions and combinations. At certain points, the hula dancers are just humping whatever part of your body they can squeeze onto. You look like a crab being attacked by a group of starfish, except you're not a crab, you're Andy, and you're covered in sweet Hawaiian puss. Like the bread. (laughs) One aggressive hula dancer sits on your face, which hurts, and basically just rubs her vagina and butthole all over it. (laughs) Later, when you're having sex with her from behind but standing, you grab her face and spit in her mouth and call her a slut, because that's somehow erotic to empowered women. (laughs) You don't get it, but you still do it, because you're a generous lover. When you wake up the next morning, you think, what an exotic trip. <laughs> but you could get more exotic, so you head out on an adventure. You're going to see what, is, what else is exotic on Maui. You hike through the jungle, fucking monkeys and birds. <laughs> you go surfing. You hang ten, and you fuck giant sea turtles, dolphins. <laughs> you even fuck a humpback whale, and you understand where the name humpback comes from. <laughs> you see Dog the Bounty Hunter, and you fuck him. <laughs> You shit on his giant titted wife's face. You even fuck his son Leland, gripping that tight ponytail and threatening to grab his mace if he tries anything. They all laugh later when you admit that you've never thrown up the shaka while giving someone the shocker. Oh, Maui, how exotic are you? Later, you hike Halakalea Volcano at sunset. You think about how great your year has been and you think about how great Maui is. When you reach the top, you look into the mouth of the volcano. The red lava bubbling and smoking, hot and somehow metallic liquid at the same time. You set your drink down on your table, and then you remember, duh, I don't have a table, I'm on a volcano. (laughs) You look down, and sure enough, you have a boner again. (laughs) This time it's bigger. How? Why? Are you turned on by how exotic this trip has been? No. You couldn't possibly. Yes. Yes, you can. You're going to fuck this volcano. (laughs) You dive in, disappearing into the lava, your body disassembling molecule by molecule, separating and dispersing through the womb of this ancient mountain. Reality becomes fluid. Your consciousness transcends what you once knew. You are now Maui. You are now exotic. A little while later, after you've used your new powers to perv out a bit, you run into the ghost of the last Hawaiian queen, Liliuka Lokalani. She is beautiful. She smokes weed. She likes rap from the 90s. 
Anyways, you guys fuck a bunch. <laughs> and then, um, you know, the trip kind of comes to an end. Uh, later, when you're getting ready to go home, you see the large mural at the Hana Airport. It says Aloha Maui, and you think, more like a blowjob, ha, huh? which... <laughs> Which doesn't really work. But hey, what an exotic trip it's been. Andy Haynes. Give it up for Barbara Gray. Barbara Gray. I don't want this to sway you, but it is Barbara Gray's birthday. She's here with you, good people. I'm really glad this is how I'm spending my birthday, you guys, with all of my best friends reading this. Okay. (laughs) I hope you're ready. Um, (sighs) Let me adjust this. That's not part of it. Okay. It was a bright, beautiful day in the city of San Francisco. The kids were at school, and Miranda Hillard, the lady of the house, was away at her interior decorating job, while their housekeeper... Euphigenia Doubtfire <laughs> had, the, had the house all to herself. <laughs> this was one of her favorite times of day because you see, Euphigenia was not, in fact, Euphigenia at all. She was Daniel Hillard. Miranda's ex-husband in disguise, in case you guys had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) And this was he, and therefore Mrs. Doubtfire's favorite time of day, because every day he would sneak delicately into the bedroom once shared by he and Miranda. Setting a picture of the brunette Miranda upon the bed, Mrs. Doubtfire went to work rummaging around in her chest of drawers. Under a pile of identical tan capri pants. (laughs) The the now-shaved man hand found the treasure, a massive flesh-colored double dildo. (laughs) Daniel laughed to himself, thinking of all the times he tried to get his wife to get a little kinky or smile in the bedroom. As Euphigenia stepped out of her lady bloomers, she relieved a sigh, knowing her massive raging boner would soon be set free. (laughs) She delicately propped the picture of Miranda up against the pillow and went to work freeing the cock growing inside her granny panties. (laughs) As she removed them, her cock and massive hairy man balls were set free. A slight string of pre-cum dripping on the silk duvet cover. Guess I'll have to clean that later, she grumbled to herself. (laughs) As she began to stroke her pulsing member, she stared intensely at the picture of Miranda, thinking of all the times she'd screamed at Daniel in rage, like when he had a birthday party for the middle Lawrence brother. Oh, how he'd wish Miranda had taken it out on him in the bedroom, strapping on some big fake cock and making him beg for mercy. With this in mind, Mrs. Doubtfire lubed up the massive 12-inch dildo with pre-cum and began to slowly work it around the black hole of hair that enveloped Daniel's asshole. (laughs) (laughs) He moaned in Mrs. Doubtfire's voice, leaning back, eyes half-closed, imagining Miranda punishing him for burning dinner or paying the bills late again. (laughs) 
Oh, yes, dear. She groaned. (laughs) Both hands underneath her massive floral print dress, working her cock and asshole for all they were worth. In such a state of ecstasy, Mrs. Doubtfire didn't hear the front door as it opened and the footsteps that softly padded up the stairs. So it was quite to her surprise when, just as she was about to orgasm, the bedroom door opened and there stood a dashing tan British gentleman who looked just like Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) He stared in shock at his girlfriend's housekeeper pleasuring herself with a giant dong he got Miranda as an anniversary gift. Being unable to see Daniel's cock under the dress, it appeared to Stu Dunmire that Mrs. Doubtfire was shoving ten inches of the dick into her old lady vagina over and over again. The sight of this stirred Stu, and he quickly went to cover his erection. Mrs. Doubtfire, what do you think you're doing? The old woman immediately sat up quickly and painfully removed the spit and pre-cum-covered dildo out of her asshole. Stu! These voices are going to get right. Uh, oh, Stu! She said in a low voice before realizing her mistake. Stu, what are you doing here? I don't know what that is. I wanted to make dinner for Miranda as a, as a surprise. Oh, how thoughtful. I'm just cl- cleaning up the place, Mrs. Doubtfire stuttered. As she rattled off excuses about what she was doing, Stu's eyes traced down the lumps of what he thought was her old woman body. It wasn't the first time he'd been excited by Mrs. Doubtfire. Once, (laughs) when her teeth fell out during dinner, (laughs) it was was all Stu could do not to explode under the table, thinking of her jowly old mouth enveloping his big tan British cock inside of it. (laughs) How many words are there for cock? Because I only have like three, I'm sorry. Um, Stu realized this was his chance. Stop talking, Stu smirked, moving towards the bed. You know, Miranda would be very upset if she knew you were using her toy, he said, indicating the slightly shit-covered dildo now strewn upon the floor. (laughs) Oh, dear, please, please don't tell her. I I need this job, pleaded Mrs. Doubtfire, her twinkling blue eyes begging for mercy. I'll do anything, anything at all. And just then, she locked eyes with Stu, who smirked and had his pants off in the blink of an eye. (laughs) Take off your clothes, you old slut, he grunted as he pulled at his smooth brown balls, which were almost as handsome as he was. <laughs> oh, pl- oh, please, I'll do anything, but just, just don't ma- make me disrobe. It makes me very self-conscious. Fine, roll over, Stu said, barely able to contain himself at this point. Daniel, panicking and yet elated that he would not be discovered, turned over. <laughs> and screamed as the Brit's massive cock found its way to her asshole. Stu, thinking he was fucking her wet lady cunt, shoved Mrs. Doubtfire's head into the bed. Shut up, you goddamn whore! Daniel, still safe from the truth, worked his hand around and stroked his dick as Stu thrust again and again into the gaping, hairy asshole. This is what you wanted, isn't it, you disgusting old bag? Oh, yes, Mrs. Doubtfire muffled into the bed. Yes, Stuart, fuck me hard. The two men became one unit, pumping away in unison as each grew closer and closer to coming. It was at that moment that Miranda Hillard burst into the room. Scared that something violent was happening in her bedroom from the noises she heard downstairs, Stu and Mrs. Doubtfire, unable to control themselves, both orgasmed violently in front of the mother of three. (laughs) 
Stu's come pouring out of the dark lady man vagina he'd plundered. <laughs> what is going on here? Stu simply looked at her, knowing how far she'd come with her open mind, still weak from the thundering ball juice pumping into what he believed to be an old gray twat. <laughs> Miranda, he calmly replied, it's, oh Jesus, it's the whole time. The whole time? The whole time? She gasped back at him. A direct quote from the movie that maybe nobody knows except for me. (laughs) Not understanding why he would use their phrase for kinky fucking the whole time when she had just walked in on him going to town on her poor innocent housekeeper. As Miranda stood, her mouth agape, the shopping bag she had tumbled to the ground, revealing the latest addition addition to her arsenal. A seven-inch strap-on, which she intended to break break in... uh, Breaking on stew that very night. I just wrote this part. <clears throat> All the eyes in the room went to the strap-on. And then, in a flash, Stu and Miranda had sandwiched Euphigenia between them. <laughs> Each pumping away at what they believed was to be the old horse pussy and ass, but was actually Daniel's now ma- massively gaping asshole. <laughs> The three formed a rhythm, Miranda on the bottom, the strap-on digging into her hair pie. Stew on top, sweating his sweet UK beads onto Doubtfire's back. Hello! Mrs. Doubtfire screamed, coming again and again, up inside the thick dress. As Stew, Miranda, and Mrs. Doubtfire gasped for air, and pulled out of the shithole. (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire tumbled to the ground, Daniel's now limp cock exposed. Staring in shock, a gasp came from yet another unexpected visitor. (laughs) Daniel and Miranda's youngest daughter, (laughs) the girl from Matilda. Daddy, she said, seeing the cock. That's it. It ends on daddy. That's it. Thank you, guys. And let's keep it going for Sean Patton. Mr. Sean Patton. I'm just going to uh, get right into this. Here we go. Walter sat alone in an automobile. He appeared to be in pain. We hear what sound like the cries of a baby. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Jesse couldn't sleep. He hadn't really slept since murdering Gail a year earlier. The guilt was inside of him. He felt impregnated by that guilt, just like Jane, his former girlfriend, was impregnated by him. Jesse, of course, never found out about that pregnancy since Jane was too busy choking on her own vomit to ever tell him about it. (laughs) Truth be told, had she lived, her and Jesse were such fucking smack fiends, that baby would have come out looking like Benjamin Button had he never started aging backwards. Like a midget dressed as a scrotum for Halloween. (laughs) 
Gale needed to go. Gale needed to go, said Jesse over and over again. And he was right. Gale was the reason he and Walt were almost murdered. It was those few minutes after the bullet end, it ended Gale's life that Jesse couldn't let go of. Pow! Gale was dead before he hit the ground. Jesse knew what he had done, and the guilt hit him hard about that too. He started to walk away, but turned back in the hopes that maybe Gale had survived that gunshot to the face. <laughs> hey, hey, are you like, sure you're like, dead or whatever? <laughs> Gale didn't answer, because he was dead. <laughs> well, he didn't answer verbally, that is. See, because Gale was such a nerd, the rigor mortis had set in immediately. When nerds die, the rigor mortis takes effect. effect. <laughs> Only a true nerd can explain this, which they never get the chance to do because they're dead when it happens. <laughs> yo, what's up with the boner, yo? Are you, like, gay or something? If you think, like, I'm going to give you a hand job or something because I shot you, like, in the face, you're wrong, yo. Again, no answer. Because that gunshot had damaged the part of Gail's brain that made him alive. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fine, yo. But just like this once or whatever. <laughs> Jesse got down on his knees and pulled out Gail's 8.5-inch fleshy test tube, and he got to polishing it as if Walter himself were going to show up at any moment and inspect how clean it were. <laughs> Jesse pumped on that dick like each stroke erased a mistake he had made in his past. <laughs> and with enough strokes, he could start his life over. The strange thing was that Gail, when alive, was such a fucking dweeb that he never actually had contact with a female. No woman would come near that nasally voice for long enough to hear him quote any 19th century poet, so his dick had never actually been touched by another human being until now, where Jesse was yanking on it like he thought it was the generator from him and Walt's old RV. <laughs> yes, Gail was dead, but this contact caused a homophonetic reaction in his body, releasing microscopic neurothorons that once mixed with the calorigigamic kilograms that naturally exist in the New Mexico air resulted in a psychogalactical biotoxic sumor quasar, and once that congeliated with the hydronious particles in the verbosphere, it created a sonic hyperbolization that actually brought Gale back to life. <laughs> What the? You're, you're, it's working or whatever? Oh shit, yo. Oh, when you come back to life, you better disappear before Gale finally be began to speak. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, suddenly Gale sat straight up with the excitement that only Thomas Edison could have felt when he successfully stole the idea for alternating currency from Nikolai Tesla. <laughs> This startled Jesse only because it had worked. Jesse had H-dayed Gale back to life, at least for the time being. Where I sitting, heard the astronomer, stroke it, yeah, stroke that fucking cock, you Neanderthal motherfucker. Yeah, bitch, shouted back Jesse, stroke it, you fucking piece of shit. Stroke that cock. Now take your unusually straight and white for a meth head teeth and wrap that around my hard dick, nigga. <laughs> Jesse, 
being of a subservient nature, especially when it came to older Caucasian or men, <laughs> did as he was told. Gail, having just been shot in the face and on the verge of his first other human-evoked orgasm, was suddenly at a loss for words. Not even a quote from the great Walt Whitman could describe how he felt. Yeah! Yeah! Gail didn't have to say he was about to come because Jesse knew that was the sound. He himself had made it many times whilst inside of Andrea, secretly hoping to give his current Latin girlfriend another child to one day raise alone after he dies in the second half of season five. Because he's going to, right? He's going to fucking die. Like, he has to for so many reasons. Like, moral, story, character. Like, Jesse can't survive. He doesn't really bring anything to the table. And he's like the tragedy, isn't he? He is. You'd think, it'd be, you'd think it would be Hank. And you might be right in that aspect. I really think it's got to be Jesse because we've all gotten to like him so much that if he goes, our hearts go a little bit too. You know what I mean? Yeah, Walt's obviously... Ob- obviously, Walt's like out of the picture. has has got to go too. I know it's sad, but that's life. And then the show has been really realistic thus far, so he's got to go. <clears throat> Jesse backed away from Gail's dick in a way that he never backed away from a glass dick. (laughs) Suddenly, a beam of semen, whiter than the white in Walter White's name, (laughs) shot forth from Gail's cartilage beaker in one massive squirt. That testicular explosion had the power of 2.42 gigawatts and a 96.2% accuracy. It hit Gale in the exact spot on his face that the bullet from Jesse's gun had hit him, only with much more velocity, (laughs) splattering more of his brains all over the carpet. Gale blew a big old load that blew the rest of his brains out, killing him for a second time. (laughs) Meanwhile, at Los Pollos Hermanos... (laughs) Anything I can do to help, Mrs. White, said Gustavo Frank. He wasn't sure why Skylar had come to see him, but he had hoped that biscuit, fluffy white rump had something to do with it. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Fring. I was actually hoping to talk to you about my son, Walter Jr. Is everything all right? Gustavo could give a fuck about Walter Jr. <laughs> and he wanted the recipient of that fuck to be Skyler. He intended to milk those bubbly breasts and use that breast milk in the milk wash for battering his chicken, which, of course, was the secret to his recipe. <laughs> using the breast milk of the wives of his employees that he intended to soon murder. I was hoping to get him a job. Well, the boy's physical impairments can be a problem in the kitchen. Well, he's very capable. A problem that can be easily overlooked. With that, Skylar White was bent over Gus's desk, him kneeling behind her, gazing into that mountain range of an ass with the same awe that John Denver had when he first saw the Rockies. Gus buried his face into her rectal canyon and sucked on her puckered turd chopper like he was from an alien species that breathed methane instead of oxygen. (laughs) Skylar couldn't hold back anymore. It had been so long since Walt had put that goatee anywhere near her intestinal blowhole. She orgasmed him, coating Gus's chest with hot pussy lava. (laughs) Gus stood up. His dick harder than immigrating to the U.S. from Mexico without proper documentation. (laughs) And looking down at Skylar's steaming cauldron of a vagina, he dipped himself into her like a drumstick into a hot fryer set at 350 degrees. See Walt's face again, pan back to reveal him inside of his baby banana green Pontiac Aztec. 
parked in the parking lot of that same Los Pollos Hermanos. Suspicious of Gus earlier, Walt had planted a sound bug in his office, and he now listened to his wife, Skylar. Her moans in reaction to Gus pounding away on that Lysol gash resembled the cries of their newborn daughter after the doctor had slapped her backside to start her breathing. This made Walt angry, of course, and anger made Walt horny. He was sitting in his car, tugging on himself so hard that you think he was trying to give himself a homemade sex change operation. He jerked off with the energy and velocity of someone who had just smoked a bowl of his blue meth. <laughs> Finally, he blew his load all over the inner windshield. He rested for a second, got his glasses from the back seat, and took a look. That wasn't semen on the inside of his windshield. Oh, no. It was all in one sturdy lump. He took a closer look. <gasps> it was his tumor. <laughs> Walt had gotten so angry, jerked off so hard, and came at such a velocity that he ejaculated the cancerous tumor from his lungs. <laughs> he drove away. That's all I got. <laughs> Sean and your final round one competitor, David Hutzberger, ladies and gentlemen. Dear Santa, I just wanted to wait and tell you that even though I didn't say any swears and I haven't wetted the bed all year except for once when I got scared because I was, had a nightmare that I was going to heck, it's okay if you don't bring me any presents. Mommy and Daddy told me that you knew I was naughty because they caught me looking at a magazine with boys with their shirts off. I really like to play with dolls, and when I play submarine in the bathtub, I pretend that the magazine men are swimming all around me. This makes my periscope get hot and rise out of the water. <laughs> anyway, thank you for the Bible last year. Mommy and Daddy say if I don't read it every day, then I'll go to heck. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm a bad kid, but I didn't spell the juice on the carpet. That was actually my sister. I just took the blame so she could go trick-or-tweeting. <laughs> I had to stay in and say my prayers. I got in even more trouble when an older boy came trick-or-tweeting at our house dressed as He-Man, and my periscope went up. <laughs> That made Daddy spank my bottom and tell me I was going to heck. If I knew I wasn't going to have Halloween or Christmas, I would have let my sister take the blame. I had a really good Princess Diana costume. My grandma helped me sew. I still love you, and I'll try to be better next year. Sorry for being bad. Your friend, Anthony. Dear Anthony, your parents are cunts. Sincerely, Santa Claus. Dear Anthony, sorry about that first response. Look, I don't normally write back to children, but I've had some scotch, and you seem like a good kid. And for the record, I would never give anyone a goddamn Bible. I left you the easy-bake oven you asked for, but your parents threw it away before you got up. So you get some boners looking at chiseled dudes. That's totally normal. Truth to tell, your old pal Santa's had some of those same feelings. Mrs. Claus is nice, but the old lady look, the wire-rimmed glasses, hair in a bun, the dress that goes up to her earlobes, what is that? You think there's a vixen under there? A real hellcat that gets gnarly once the lights go out? Not even close. Let me put it this way. If she were a sex toy, she'd be a slide whistle. A 
very dry slide whistle. And to be honest, that's my doing. I was never that excited to get a peek into a reindeer cave. No, my loins burned for another. Day in and day out, I'd walk down to my workshop, always find some, finding some reason I needed to check out things, each ruse more pathetic than the last. Everyone good on sawdust, I'd ask. <laughs> the elves would scoff, thinking I was just micromanaging, which was fine with me. It would be much worse if they knew my true intentions, that I yearned. <laughs> that I had to cast my eyes on the one true thing of beauty the world had ever made, that I had to watch him work, that I had to see Gary. Gary, my finest elf. <laughs> a true specimen of a man wrapped in an elf's body, to watch him mold and bend and stroke and caress. His hands, oh, his tiny hands, a gift from God. Their strength, their softness, the command and control, the way he holds the tools, Envisioning those very hands wrapped around my periscope. <laughs> sliding and stroking, squeezing and loving, no need for lubrication. His tiny hands naturally oiled from the strong, pungent musk that emanates from his very pores. How large those hands would make my throbbing candy cane look. I'd be lost in another world watching him work. And the other elves couldn't know that. Couldn't know that I loved him. That I wanted nothing more than to have him that I had to go behind the tool shed and feverishly masturbate to the thought of a tiny elf stroking my Timmy stuffer and wanting nothing more than them for him to put his sweet, soft, succulent mouth around it for even just a second. Why, that would result in an explosion of delight that would paint the side of the shed like a Jackson Pollock. But no, I held my desires. And imagine how it would feel, on Christmas Eve, no less, to find your sweet Gary one night sneaking out of your house, fixing his pants, seeing your frigid, disgusting, dried-up slide whistle of a wife, <laughs> straightening her, tear, her hair and pretending she'd misplaced her glasses. Gla Gary had clearly torn them off of her during the heat of passion. We all know that. That's just Gary. <laughs> And how could I hate him for that? I hated him for choosing her, not me. I hated myself for being jealous of a wife who had just been penetrated by an elf. <laughs> and so I left. I got in my sleigh and started the night's rounds early. I nearly whipped Rudolph to death as we sped across the sky. <laughs> faster and faster, trying to escape my rage, I whipped and whipped. And then we reached the first stop. I hadn't noticed that all that anger and rage had given me a pretty stunning unicorn horn in my pants. <laughs> I could barely fit down the chimney. I placed my gifts, a cookbook, an air rifle, the usual. I finished and turned to leave, but there was a note and some cookies. You know I love cookies, but these were special cookies. The frosting was a very special glaze that only a man can make. The kind of glaze that you typically put on the side of a tool shed. I picked up a cookie and took a closer look. Then I saw something from the corner of my eye. I turned. It was your father. <laughs> Completely naked. He also held a cookie. Our eyes locked. He then glanced down at the chimney in my pants. His eyes widened. He licked his lips and then the frosting from his cookie. I bit into mine and charged at him. Still hurt from the memory of Gary, I grabbed your father by his shoulders. He closed his eyes to kiss me, but I had no need for that. In the passion... <laughs> In the passion, I turned him around and dropped my pants. He squealed, take me, said it. But before he had finished the sentence, the train had entered the tunnel. You 
remember that train set I gave you when you were four? Like that, except this train reversed and plowed ahead and reversed and ahead faster and faster. Your father moaned in ecstasy, his teeth clenched, his body firm, the sweat glistening, the sound of our bodies like that of hands on dough, the way you had imagined it would be with your easy-bake oven. And we were baking a batch of frosting tonight. Only this wouldn't go on any cookie. Our bodies writhed, my fingers gripping his hips. You remember that air rifle I got your brother? How you'd pump it faster and faster and faster. And the last pumps, harder and harder. So hard that your arms quiver and shake, feeling like you might not be able to hold on until the pump finally closes. And it's ready to shoot. Well, this gun did shoot. Santa emptied his entire bag all over your father's stupid Bible-thumping face. (laughs) He looked like a gingerbread man that had been frosted by a blind toddler with multiple sclerosis. (laughs) I pulled up my pants and shot up the chimney in the literal sense. I returned home, put the reindeer away, climbed into bed, and kissed Mrs. Claus. She said, what's in your beard? Why, Santa has lots of treats in his beard. But you know what this one was. This was just a little something to help me get through a tough time. They can take your cookie, Anthony, but don't let them take your frosting. (laughs) You're a good kid, and I won't forget you. Sincerely, your platonic homosexual friend, Santa Claus. (laughs) David Hustler, stay right there, David. Bring everybody back up for round one. So, you guys... uh, We'll vote on a winner with your applause, but first I'm just going to remind you of what everybody wrote, uh, so no voting yet. We started with Joe Starr with Warren G and Nate Dog, then Andy Haynes with Exotic Fan Fiction, uh, Barbara Gray with Mrs. Doubtfire, Sean Patton with Breaking Bad, and David Huntsberger with Santa Claus. So, starting from Joe Starr, Warren G and Nate Dog. Yeah. Andy Haynes, Exotic Fan Fiction. Thanks, guys. Barbara Gray, Mrs. Doubtfire. Sean Patton, Breaking Bad. David Huntsberger, Santa Claus. We're giving that to Mr. David Huntsberger with Santa Claus. That does it for round one. Congratulations, David Huntsberger. To hear round two from this show, featuring Virginia Jones, John Roy, Ed Salazar, Aaron Whitehead, and Nate Craig, reading pieces they wrote based upon audience suggestions, go download episode 14. I'm very excited to finally get to announce the competitive erotic fan fiction will be featured at the Outside Lands Festival in San Francisco on August 10th, featuring Dave Hill, Natasha Leggero, Matt Bronger, Bruce McCullough from Kids in the Hall, and more. August 20th, we're back at Nerd Melt in L.A. at 7 p.m. with very special guest Mary Lynn Ricecup. August 23rd and 24th, we'll be at the High Plains Comedy Festival in Denver. Labor Day weekend at Bumbershoot in Seattle. And stay tuned for information on a show in Omaha that I'm finalizing now. Details can always be found in the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Facebook group or by following me on Twitter, at Brian Cooking. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com.